I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest has such a storied career that we're actually giving her two full episodes on the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Kaylee Humphreys is a two-time Olympic champion and Olympic bronze medalist in the two-woman bobsled. With her victory in 2014, she became the first female bobsledder to defend her Olympic title. And with that historic win, she was named the flag bearer for the closing ceremonies at that Games. To date, Kaylee is the most successful Canadian bobsledder in history. But her story doesn't end there. In today's episode, we talk about how Kaylee got into the sport, the importance and power of visualization, her powerful mindset change that kept her on the path to gold, and how heartbreak during her first Olympic experience actually led to an unforgettable victory. And I want to encourage you to tune in next week for part two because her story takes a wild, unexpected turn and we find out what it takes to overcome abuse and write history. But before we dive into part one of Kaylee's story, I want you to go and subscribe to this show right now so that you don't miss a single episode. The next one, it could be the one that you need to hear in order to overcome some obstacle, or maybe it could provide the encouragement you need to keep going. And while you're subscribing, please take a minute to rate and review us. Your reviews really do help us to continue to bring on these amazing, awe-inspiring guests like Kaylee Humphreys. Now, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Kaylee Humphreys, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Thank you so much for making the time and being on with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. This is awesome. Oh, thanks. Um, Before we get into all the exciting, awesome sports stuff and all your career, um, we have to talk about our dogs because you sent me pictures of your sweet little petite golden doodle and I have my new puppy and they're just adorable. So can we gush for a minute? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I never thought I'd be one of those like crazy dog moms, but at the end of the day, I am. Yeah. Um, you know, she's my little fur baby. <laughs> exactly. And when I saw a picture of yours, I was like, oh, it looks exactly my dog's name is Duchess. Aww. And so it was like, she looks exactly like yours when she was younger. She's a little more blonde and a little less apricot red mm-hmm. color now, but she's amazing. She's like the so best cute. Oh my gosh. So cute. You sent me those pictures. I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Cause our Rest- Rusty is our dog's name and he's, yeah, he's very red right now, but when he's in certain light, he looks a lot lighter. So I can see him definitely getting a little lighter later on, but and he's a cavapoo? He's a correct? cavapoo. Yeah, it's a it's a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel mixed with a mini poodle. <laughs> so just, just like the, the fluff balls. They're so yeah, cute. Yeah. I know. <laughs> little cotton balls. That's what my husband calls them. Yes. Or calls Duchess anyways. She's like a little cotton ball. I know. <laughs> like, I love yes, it. Is. I love it. And they're a little unconditional love. Like my kids are just loving that. I, I mean, I love it. I feel like our dog is like therapy. They, they have something. They get hurt. Something's wrong. I just hand them the dog and they immediately are okay. <laughs> it's awesome. 100%. It's the destruction. And it is. It's the love that you get like the little tail wags no matter what happens in the day when you come home Mm -hmm. and it's a distraction too in a positive way or that's the way I see it you know it allows me to keep on schedule they're regimented Mm -hmm. I take her for walks I'm responsible for something else yeah I get to pour my love and affection into something and (laughs) yes I get the unconditional part too so yeah I've always grown up with dogs but yeah this one is she's smart the golden doodle she's got the playfulness of the golden retriever but she definitely has the smarts of a poodle so sometimes a little too smart <laughs> <But Uh-oh. it's, laughs> thanks uh, for the warning i guess we'll have that <laughs> to look forward to <laughs> well just they pick up like habits and traits and you're like where did you get this or learn and 
just certain aspects. I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing now. Okay, I'm on to you. See, I got gotcha. you. In, in parenting children, they call that accidental parenting, where you don't really, you're like, where did you pick this up from? Then you realize what you've been doing and that's how they've picked it up. And you're like, oh man, that's all my fault. hundred <laughs> percent. So funny. Okay. Well, thanks. We had to gush a little bit, but on to the exciting stuff with the sports world. Now you are obviously a very legendary bobsledder now, but how did you didn't grow up in bobsled? What did you grow up doing? I grew up doing ski racing. Ski racing. Wow. Um, I was young. I did all the disciplines, downhill, super GGS, slalom. Um, Think of Lindsey Vaughn. Mm -hmm. Pretty much that was my world. I started that when I was nine years old, which into the ski racing world is old. Really? See, I grew yeah, up, I, I, I'm from Houston, Texas, so there's like no right. snow, no even thoughts of snow. So all of the winter stuff is amazing to me. So you're going to have to walk me through how Walking nine through. years old is old to start, you know, downhill ski racing. A lot of people start skiing at a very young age. I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and we have the Rocky Mountains, you know, 40 minutes outside of where we lived. So going to the mountains, skiing, snowboarding, like winter sports and outside stuff is just the way of life. And most people start skiing. A lot of the good top ski racers will start younger, two, three, four years old. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't start till nine wow. learning how to ski. So that was a bit late, but I loved it. And I loved the racing aspect. For me, sports was always an outlet. It was where I felt the most comfortable, where I felt the safest. Even when I was by myself, you know, riding the chairlift or in the lunchrooms, it, it didn't really matter. I got to focus on me and what it felt like when I was on the skis. I got to push myself, challenge myself. It, it felt the most comfortable working out the physical side, the mental side. Sports was always a release. And so I fell into ski racing and I was like, yes, this is it. <laughs> and shortly after I watched the Olympics and I was like, this is perfect. This suits me and my personality. And although I'm young, it just, it really, the Olympics from a young age really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. And I watched the athletes and the passion that they had and just being able to see them get their medals and sing their anthem. And I was like, I want to go to the Olympics. And of course my parents were probably like, yeah, good luck. Have fun. Um, <laughs> as most parents but for do. Me, <laughs> as parents do, like, yeah, it's, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> but I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm skiing, so I'm going to go and ski racing. And I, I worked hard. I won't lie. I tried. And I really did believe in myself and my ability. But I had a few crashes. I definitely got scared. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how they're able just to freely and fearlessly fly down. Once I had a couple crashes, I broke a couple bones. Um I, I didn't have that ability just to kind of let it all go and, and start flying down the track anymore. I was a bit more reserved. So my races, I started to lose and coming last on a consistent basis, it wears you down. I yeah. won't lie. And you know, the reality hits of, is this fun? Is this what I want to do? And is it realistic? And I had to look at myself and I made a commitment every year. My dad used to always say, if I pay, you play. <laughs> so for every year at the start of the year, we would sit down and have a very you know, direct conversation about sport and the investment that would go into equipment in any type. My sister had it with horses, which was her passion, or, Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't matter what it was, you know, here's the commitment you're making to yourself and for the year. And I was afforded a lot of opportunities. And so, you know, every year we sat down and finally, when I was about 16, I realized, you know what, I don't love it. I'm not going to ever go to the Olympics. I'm not at that level anymore. It wasn't for me. So I took a year off and then I found bobsled. So how how did you just find bobsled? In Calgary, they had the 1988 Olympics. So there is a bobsled track there. 
the 88 Olympics was the Olympics where you had the Jamaican bobsled team and the uh-huh. Cool Runnings movie oh, yeah. is all based oh, yeah. off of. Oh, so, my favorites. <laughs> yeah, mine too. <laughs> yeah, so training for skiing allowed me to see some of the bobsled athletes training in the same vicinity at the same gym. And they were all very strong, powerful women that I was watching. Unfortunately for bobsled, it, and not so much unfortunately, but it's a secondhand sport, um, as they call mean? it. So basically a lot or all of us come secondhand from a previous sport. Junior in bobsled is to the age of 26. And wow. most people starting young is starting at 18, 19, 20 years old. Oh, most interesting. people get into it at 26 through 30. So you've already done a sport to a certain level. You have to be 18 to compete internationally in bobsled. Wow. And you have to be able to sign forms because of the G-force that gets put oh, through your body, yeah. because Just of the, the liability, and the risk. Yeah. yeah, all of it. You have to be an actual adult. So most athletes, you've already been an athlete at some point in your life. And whether it's injury, you know, commitment, opportunity, it doesn't matter what it is. You haven't quite achieved your dreams. Or even if you have, you get recruited. You know, Felicia George was a two-time Olympic medalist in hurdles for Canada. And afterwards, I was able to kind of call her and be like, hey, want to do another year <laughs> and a half and come to winter? And so some get recruited, some find it. For me, I had just found the sport. And I've always been very strong for a female. I've always had very big legs. Strength is one of my attributes. So in trying to figure out if I wanted to move to a different sport and what sport I would look at, I was looking at a bunch of different options and I know speed skaters have really strong legs and the bobsledders seem to have really strong legs. And so I was like, what can I try? And bobsled was the first thing. They had a talent ID camp is what they call it Mm -hmm. or recruitment camp. And it was the first thing that was available for me to go try. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try and we'll see how it goes. And that was 16 years ago now. (laughs) Did you just love it from day one or? I was unsure. Uh, my dad had to come with me and like sign a waiver to make sure everything was good when I first tried out. I made the national team within a year. And wow. for me, that renewed my faith in my ability as an athlete, mm-hmm. especially because, you know, when you end a sport coming last and realizing that your dreams are not going to come true, it, it defeats you. And you're not sure if you're good. You're not sure if going to the Olympics is an actual realistic goal. Um, if it's just you need to take a different path or am I giving up on being an athlete altogether? So for me right away, I wasn't quite sure if I loved this sport. I grew to love it. But at the end of the day, it was providing an opportunity and I wanted to see where it would go. And each time I was getting stronger, I was getting faster. It renewed my faith and my ability as an athlete, which was which was big for me. And so that drive and that motivation and that goal setting aspect really continued step by step along the way, which drew me to love the sport even more. Yeah, I can relate to that. I actually grew up as a gymnast. Uh, Divers often come, they either start really young as a diver or they come from like gymnastics or trampoline or something very acrobatic like that's common. Um, So I can totally relate to that. I started diving when I was almost 16. And so uh, I totally get that. And and when I quit gymnastics, it it wasn't necessarily I wasn't getting like last, but I, I just realized I wasn't loving it as much. And I knew I wasn't going to be Mary Lou Retton or somebody, you know, like I had dreamed yeah. of being, but that dream of going to the Olympics and being an Olympian was still there. And so I, I also just pursued a bunch of stuff until I found a sport that was like, it just fit. And yeah, same, same kind of thing. Like I could still excel at this. I, I totally get that. That's cool. What was, what was that first slide down? Like, was it terrifying or was it exhilarating or were you <laughs> yeah. just not sure? I mean, how fast do you go? 
So every bobsled track around the world is completely different. So some tracks you're going 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. The fastest track in the world is in Whistler, British Columbia in Canada. You get going, you know, close to 100 miles an hour. Most tracks on average are about 80 to 85 miles an hour. The first trip down, I mean, it's scary. It It's different. It feels it, so hard for me to explain. Um, there really <laughs> isn't a way to explain it. It's you get the G-force, which feels like you have 300 pounds being forced on top of you on and off as you're in this squatted, bent over kind of folded position. And so the whole ride down, you end up, and again, this is going to sound weird, but you end up doing this the whole entire <laughs> way down. And so you're like, what is happening right now? And then on top of that, as you're being folded into a sandwich on and off the whole time, then you're getting thrashed left and right as well. So it's not as smooth as it looks on TV. I can 100% guarantee you that. There's no shock absorbers. It is a steel metal frame and some carbon fiber on the outside. We sometimes, depending on weight restrictions, we'll have a bit of padding where there's like some nuts and bolts that will stick out. But overall, it's not cushy. It's not comfortable in the slightest. And you just like you're driving in a car and think of when you when you're in a car more like a convertible because the top's open and you take a corner too fast and you can really feel the pressure like turn into your body and it throws you into the seat sideways. Oh man. So it, it does that as well as then pushes from the top down at the same point, um, kind of folding you over. And so the pilots have to, we have a little backrest, um, which is nice. So it helps support your back a little bit. So you don't just collapse down and can't see anything. But that's the trick of being one of the pilots is being able to control and see and anticipate the sled while all of that G-force and adrenaline and everything's coming at you so fast. And sometimes you have inches to work with where you have to steer the sled through certain parts of the corner. Oh, man. Do you get like massive whiplash like when you first start doing it because you don't know how to hold yourself or are you just squished down in such a little ball you can't move? (laughs) No, most of the time you do get whiplash. If anybody ever gets the opportunity, go because I'm, I feel like I'm butchering how it feels. It is cool. It is unlike anything you will have ever felt in your whole entire life. Unless I feel like if you've been in a fighter jet or like a Formula One race car, you're going to have an idea. Oh, wow. But unless you've been in one of those two, nope, nope. you don't really get the full sense of everything, but it, Yeah. Overall, you do. A lot of people do end up getting a bit of whiplash. Their neck gets really sore. They usually get headaches and stuff for the first week or two. I do almost every year at the beginning of the year for the first week or so while your body adjusts. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So you try and shrug your shoulders though. And it kind of supports your neck. Like even if you just did it right now and just pulled your shoulders to your ears and then kind of moved your heads back to back, your neck doesn't whip as much as when your shoulders are down. So everybody kind of shrugs up and braces on the outside and you kind of push your elbows and your knees on the outside of the sled and it gives you a stable base. I'm like doing that right now in my closet as you're telling me that. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) But you don't don't start as a pilot, right? You start as the brakeman, right? In the back? Um, Some people do start as pilots. I personally feel... And some of the best pilots in the world all started as brakemen, mm-hmm. especially right now. I guess that's just um, what I keep hearing. The people usually start as a brakeman. They work their way up. That's yes. not, is that normal? That's more normal? Yes. It's more normal now. 
I would say 20 years ago, you were either a pilot or a brakeman and you started as one. Sometimes people will say pilots are not as fast or as athletic as the brakeman. But I find, again, this day and age, uh, myself being an ex-Olympic level brakeman, you know, Lana Myers-Taylor is an Olympic bronze medalist as a brakeman. She's also a medalist as a pilot. Nowadays, you need two athletes that are roughly top of their game, both on the sled in both positions to, to be able to win races consistently. But I started as a brakeman. And yeah, I think it's better to start. So the brakeman, for everybody that doesn't know, is the person at the back. Um, they're called a brakeman because they pull the brakes at the very end. Both athletes will start at the at the bobsled. We push the sled for 50 meters. We jump inside. The pilot drives down. And then when we cross the finish line, then the brakeman will pull the brakes to stop the sled. There's no communication between the two on the way down. You don't hear much. But the pilot, there's a lot more skill from the driving aspect that goes into being a pilot. And so they say it takes about eight to 10 years to build a really good bobsled pilot just due to lack of time actually driving a sled, mm-hmm. um, where it takes about four years to be a, a world-class brakeman. Wow. Can, how many like runs do you get? Like if you're doing a day of training, like how many runs down the mountain do you get or down the, down the course? What do you call it? Down the track. Track. We call Thank track. you. Thank yep. you. <laughs> uh, it's all good. It's all good. So for official training before a World Cup race, we get two runs a day and there's three days of official training. So you get six runs down a track. Wow, that's it. So you would slide Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, do two runs. Monday, two runs, Tuesday, two runs, Wednesday. Sometimes you get Thursday off and then you would do your two race runs on Friday. So not having very many like opportunities to actually go down a track and you said every track is so different. Like, do you guys like get a map of it and you try to like visualize it and like those kind of things? Or how do you, cause yes. that's like nothing. That's, I mean, two runs, that's like nothing. Yeah. Can you imagine having to compete at the games off of like eight dives? Be wow. like, and go. Yeah, I know. That <laughs> like, doesn't sound good. Uh, <laughs> I need a little more time here. <laughs> it um, That's where the eight to 10 years to become a really good pilot comes in. Unfortunately, due to weather, although bobsled tracks are refrigerated, um, we do rely heavily on the weather. We like cold, crisp, clean air. We don't want snow. We don't want rain. Rain brings humidity. It makes the ice conditions really soft. The problem is our sleds weigh you know, 350 pounds, and that can dig into the ice very quickly. So we like hard, cold ice. It makes it the fastest and the smoothest and the cleanest. But you know, winter, anywhere in the world, winter is different. And so you have to kind of play with the elements and you have to learn your equipment based on the elements. And so overall, we kind of are at the mercy of weather. And realistically, we'll start training on ice. We get a couple weeks of practice at the beginning of every year. Usually it's about two or three weeks of like some training practice where we'll do maybe three to four runs in a day, but much past four runs, your body can't handle the, that many G forces and that much shaking. Interesting. So you'll find that your brain will start to like have lapses and you'll start either panicking or you'll make mistakes when you're driving or something will happen and you have like a brain fart for a second. But in that second, you can travel 30 meters. And if you travel 30 meters and haven't steered or done something correct, you can actually launch the sled out of the track. Oh, geez. And unfortunately, there's fatalities that can occur. So you need to be 100% focused every single time 
you step on the ice and you go to push. So it just requires insane focus. And yeah. So we do a lot of visualization throughout the summers as well as during the season in order to make up that lack of time. And when you close your eyes and you sit in a similar position, it's not exact. As anybody who's done visualization understands, it's not as good as doing the real thing. Right. But if that's all you can do, then that's all you can do. Nobody in the world is getting more trips down the track. In the summer, every track around the world is closed. So it's who can be the most focused and the most prepared when we can actually get on ice. And then, you know, who has the experience to be able to draw from so that you can maximize the time that you're actually doing your sport, racing or training. That's really cool. That's really cool. Well, take me back to like, because your first opportunity to try and go to the Olympics is in 2006. And I know that was kind of a, an up and down time. Like, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So my first three years in the sport, I was a brakeman. So I came into the sport, not really knowing much about it, um, being really strong, being really fast. I was young. And so there were people in our sport that had already been driving for years. And I was able to work my way up within a year to be ranked number one in Canada. And so for me, the best position was to stay at the back. I didn't have the responsibility of trying to figure out the equipment, try and figure out the corners of the tracks and the steers and everything. It was easier just to learn how to actually push a sled, understand the angles, how to maximize explosiveness, speed, strength, power, um, grow as an athlete as well. And so I spent the first three years as a brakeman and August, so about six months before the Olympics in 2006, I was ranked number one in Canada. I had spent, you know, the last three years building it up, getting bigger, faster, stronger. And I got invited to the World Push Championships. And I was so excited because for sponsors and for everybody, I was like, I could win this. And if I could become World Push Champion and then go to the Olympics, like this could be a crazy story that would be awesome. I could find sponsors, like all my dreams can come true. And uh, I went to World Push Championships and the day of competition, I ended up trying to be athletic and jump over this garden hose that was where it shouldn't have been and end up rolling my ankle. Oh my goodness. And I tore all the ligaments and muscles in my ankle, a lapse of judgment for, you know, half a split second. And uh, my career was basically over. And so I spent eight weeks in a walking cast, not walking. And then another eight weeks in a walking cast, just walking, which eliminated my entire summer previously, but most of my last couple of years. And so the whole goal was, you know, am I just going to give up now? The Olympics are, you know, four months away. Do I even have a shot at trying to work my way back up? And so I thought, well, I'll give it my best shot. I don't know what's going to happen. I can only work as hard as my body will work. And if, you know, it's not meant to be, and this is just how it is, then I have to accept that. But if I can work really hard, I have a potential to come back and maybe go to the Olympics. And so um, that's what I did. I focused on just trying to get as strong and as fast as I could and come back into shape as, as fast as I could. And I ended up working my way back up to be ranked number two in the country. So for me, I was you know, named to the Olympic team. I walked into the opening ceremonies. And again, I fell into that trap. I was young and I fell into the trap of like, okay, this is it. That was my big hurdle that I had to overcome in my Olympic story. And I'm here and I'm seeing all these athletes, Herman Meyer, who I grew up admiring as a ski racer, like from when I was young and he's sitting at the table across from me in the Olympic village. 
and I'm so excited and this is cool and walking to opening ceremonies. I'm going to be an Olympian. We have two teams that are racing and I'm ranked number two in Canada. And four days before the competition, before the race actually happened, the coaches decided to wait until the very last minute to name the teams. And I was named as the alternate. I had one team in Canada that chose performance and we had one team in Canada that chose friendship. And um, one team wanted to race with their buddy and the other one chose performance and the number one. And I was the odd man out. And that was hard because I was so close to my dream and my ultimate goal of competing at an Olympic Games, but yet so far away, not being able to compete. I had to do all the training runs so the racing girls you know, could get their rest. I was doing the most amount of work, but at the same point, I felt so disappointed in myself, in my coaching staff, in my teammates. I felt so let down on every single level. I blamed everybody, including myself. And I just, my parents had come, you know, all the way from Canada and they're there to watch me compete and I'm not competing. And how do you tell your parents, sorry, I didn't make it. Thanks for coming to Italy. And it was devastating. It was very, very hard. But I had a choice to stay or to leave when they decided who was racing. And I chose to stay. And I am so thankful that I did because as hard as it was, and I cried myself to sleep every day being there, seeing this, and yet not being able to experience it, I got to see the posters. I got to watch athletes compete families. How did they interact with their families? How did they interact with their coaching staff? I watched athletes fall apart because it was the Olympic games and not handle pressure well. And I watched athletes handle pressure with grace and with ease. And so fast forward to four years later, I find myself at the next Olympic games, having never competed, but having understood what the Olympics meant and felt like I'd already walked in an opening ceremonies. I had seen the posters. I had been around you know, the Olympic program and the teams, and I had watched athletes succeed and fail. So for me, it wasn't so much a a guessing game. I was like, okay, I'm going to implement the same skills that the successful people had implemented. You know, what did they focus on? What did I witness back then that I can use now that will benefit me and give me the, the best chance to have a great outcome? So out of one of the hardest times in my career of being the alternate in 06, it actually gave me the greatest gift. It allowed me to show and to see an experience without having the pressure of performing. And at the same point, after that experience, that's what forced me to become a bobsled driver. I thought I'm going to put destiny into my own hands. I want to learn a harder skill. I want to elevate my game so that this situation doesn't happen to me. And I'm able to control a little bit more of the outcome by becoming a bobsled pilot. And so that forced me into driving and it gave me the motivation. And then later it gave me the skill set to draw from, you know, four years later in 2010. Oh my gosh. I I love this. And I, I mean, obviously that was so devastating. Like I cannot even imagine coming that close. And then, like you said, just having to sit there and watch it every day, like that would be so, so difficult. But I love that you, you didn't let it end you, like even in the middle of the heart, in the middle of the daily tears and, and all those feelings that you're feeling, you stayed and you studied it and you watched it and look what you did with that. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. I think it's a great lesson to, to anybody listening. Like you're going to have a rough time. Like something is going to happen. Like that's just sports. I mean, something is going to happen that is going to crush you or feel like it's crushing you. 
and, and you can and go through all the feels and grieve it and all those things, but you can't let it be for nothing. Like learn from it, like use that as an opportunity to launch you going from that point forward. Don't just, don't just let it end you. You know, I, I love, I love how you use that even in the midst of the tears and the, the being upset. Like, yeah, it sucks. And human motions are human motions. Olympians, ah. medalists or not, we're all human and you're all going to have those experiences and the emotions are going to hit you. And it's not so much about trying to ignore certain aspects or limit those emotions. It's channeling it into the right direction, into yes. the right energy. It's having the people around you that allow you to, you know, go through those emotions in a safe environment and then being able to utilize that as a benefit moving forward. And I also learned in 06, um, which I feel like was a big lesson for me too. My parents had always been a huge support for me and they were there in 06. And when they flew over, none of us knew racing or not racing, just, you know, I was second in Canada. So there was a good chance and they were going to be there to watch. And my dad used to always drive me to ski racing and he used to always, you know, be a gatekeeper and like be on the track. And it was anything I needed. He was there and my mom would reserve the tables at lunch and they were always very active in my life. And so this was no different and they were there to support. And I felt so embarrassed that I hadn't made it and that, you know, we had worked so hard and I said, I was going to do this even from when I was young and I hadn't achieved it. And having them there to see that I didn't achieve it, but that's not why they were there. They weren't there to watch me. They were there to have their experience and to support me in my journey. It wasn't for them to brag or go, my daughter's an Olympian. It was, we're here through the good and the bad and the tears and the, you know, the wins and the best performances and the worst. And that was, it's all encompassing. So I hadn't let them down. But again, I would have never known that having not gone through that experience. And I think that took so much pressure moving forward off me and my career as well, knowing I wasn't doing it to impress anybody. I was doing it because it fulfilled me and my family supported that dream and they were going to be there no matter what. And I didn't have to be perfect for them. You know, I didn't have to put on a show for them because they had given up a lot for me to do it. None of that mattered. I just had to do my best. And that was all I ever had to do. And they were going to be proud regardless. And so I learned that in 2006 as well, which I also, again, I was able to look back years and years later and go, again, those were priceless gifts that um, I wouldn't have got had I not been in this situation. Right. Oh, I love that so much. You gotta, you gotta have people. I mean, even if, if you are not blessed to have awesome parents like that, um, surround yourself with people who do care about you more than what you're doing, because it's so easy for us athletes, obviously to get caught up in like, um, that just like performance mindset of like, my only value is, is based on my result or my time or my yep. finish or my place or whatever. And that's, that's not true. Like you are valuable because you're you, like you are worth it because you are a human and you are, you know, created for a purpose, you know, you're, you're important. And I think we just lose that sometimes when we get so into our sport. So make sure you surround yourself with people who are going to love you and support you, whether you win or get last place. Like it's about them supporting you in your dreams. Like there should be people in your life that do that. And if they're not, you need to go find them. <laughs> go find sure. some. Oh, yes. go find they're some. out there. <laughs> yeah. And it's okay if they're aunts and uncles or cousins yes. or coaches. It doesn't matter who yes. friends, you know, mm. family is just people that you choose to put in. Exactly. Sometimes they're blood, sometimes they're not. It doesn't mm. matter. But definitely 
it takes a village, as they say. You need yes. your tribe, you need your people, and those people should be helping you and believing in that same goal and that same dream. And they're not there to impress or take away. They're there just to allow you to be human as part of the process and they support you regardless of, you know, the yeah. result, because that's not what it's about. It is as cliche as it sounds, and I know everybody says it, it's a part of the journey. It is. But that is what sports is about. It is a giant journey on life and you get to go through all of these experiences and learn so many skills because of it. Love it. Well, so now what do the next four years look like? Because you have like decided from that really difficult time in in 06 that you are now going to be a pilot. You're taking things into your own hands. You are like going to revolutionize things. So what happens from 2006 to 2010? Yeah. So I won't lie. I got home and for about two months after 06, I was done. I was like, I quit. I hate the sport. I hate the people. I hate the coaches. Like I blamed everybody. Yeah. And then I finally started to look at myself (laughs) and I was like, well, I have responsibility in this too. You know, I chose to go to World Push Champs, which set me, you know, on the path. And I was the one that tripped over the hose. And, you know, I didn't make it abundantly clear that I was to be racing. I left it up to interpretation of the coaches and some of the other athletes. And you know what? This is unfortunately, I need to be in a bigger, better, stronger position. And I started to take responsibility after a while. And then finally, my dad sat me down and he's like, Look, are you going to go again another four years or another year? Like, what's the plan? And so I took about a week to think about it once him and I sat down. And eventually, I got to the point where I was like, Okay, yes, this is. I want to continue. I don't want that to be the end of my Olympic story or my career. I want to end on, you know, good terms, on terms that I'm happy and proud of whenever that is, but I want to continue and I think I'm going to try driving. So, um I went and did a a driving school, just like they do for a road test. You have to go and get <laughs> really? your driver's license in bobsled. That's awesome. And so I um I went to Lake Placid, New York which was, you know, one of the bobsled tracks open and I did an international driving school. So for two weeks, you're in Lake Placid and you're sliding every day and you're learning how to drive a sled. I was very fortunate that I was a brakeman for the first three years because I knew, I knew the equipment. I knew what a bobsled was and the runners, which are the steel blades it runs on. I knew how it operated, what happened. I knew the track itself having slid in the back. I hadn't seen it, but I had felt it. Mm-hmm. And so I had an understanding of what it was going to feel like, what it was going to do. All I had to do was learn the steers exactly where I had to turn that rope and what I had to do. And so it it allowed me to not, again, have to see this giant, huge picture in front of me and just focus on the one aspect. And so I did the driving school for two weeks and I really did find my love for the sport again. It was a new challenge, a new opportunity still in the same sport, in the same realm, still competing in the same avenue. So it wasn't a total change of direction, but it was enough of a change that I felt confident, again, in myself, in my ability, and I had control over my future and that I was excited and I was going to see where that was going to go. And so I dedicated myself for the next four years. The next four years being uh, Vancouver 2010 would have been the next Olympics. In your home country too. As a Canadian athlete, I, that was what it was. I was like, okay, this is, this is a home Olympics. And again, they say it's going to take eight to 10 years. So realistically, Sochi, which was in Russia in 2014, you know, eight years later, that was going to be my Olympics. 2010, 
good luck. And I had people, I had sponsors. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> good luck. I had sponsors come up and go, you know what? You're not going to make it. You might as well wow. just, you know, work on helping other people. I literally had a guy say that to my face. You know, chances are, even if you do make it, you're not going to do very good. So you should probably just, you know, be a good teammate to the ones that are going to go because they're going to change the face of women's bobsled. And so how did you, I want to know how you reacted to that. Well, at first you're stunned. You're like, okay. Cause that might be true. Maybe it does take eight to 10 years. But at the same point in my head, I have this winning mentality of, well, why can't it be me? I, I find often we place, we place limitations upon other people or on ourselves based on experiences, again, of other people. And so I was like, well, this person is not a bobsledder. He's not even an athlete. Yes, you're a sponsor and you understand sports. But at the same point, you don't know. And someone's got to stand on the podium. And it wasn't until I actually spoke to another female athlete named Marnie McBean. And she was an Olympic rower, a double Olympic champion. And I sat down with her and she's like, look, someone's got to win. Someone's standing on the podium. And why can't it be you? Oh, I love and I'm like, that. I don't know. And so it was kind of one of those, like, she's like, there's no rules. History is not written. There's nothing that says it can't be you. At the end of the day, someone's going to stand there and get a medal. And it wasn't. And so as I'm looking at that, I'm like, you're right. It might not be me. It might take eight to 10 years, but I'm going to work hard because it very well could be me. And so to have somebody say to your face, it's not going to be, and to, you know, put those limitations on my ability. He didn't know where I come from. He doesn't know my history, but it, it fueled me. At first I was stunned and then it made me very mad. Um, still to this day, I haven't talked to that person <laughs> and, uh, I probably won't, but it definitely, it made me upset and not like sad, upset, but angry inside because I was like, how dare you question my ability? He very well could be right, but you don't know, you know, who are you? You're not the one that hands out the medals. Time does that. You know, bobsled is a time sport. And then I realized as well, talking about tribes, I was like, well, I don't want you to be my sponsor. I don't want you to be in or on my team because you already, you know, money or no money, you don't believe in my abilities. You don't believe I have what it takes mentally or physically to be the best, even if it's in a shortened time frame or not. I don't want you around. And so I just put up a wall with that person and we ceased to have communications moving forward. And then I thought, well, he might be right, like I said, but there's nothing that's going to stop me. Um, from working hard and just trying to do the very best that I can do. I don't know what the future is. And year one for me, I was on a development circuit. We call it Europa Cup and bobsled. Um, so we traveled all over North America and Europe doing some races. Year two of the quad, then I was able to earn my spot onto the World Cup team as a pilot. And then I spent the next two years as Canada two. Um, still as an up and coming pilot, kind of a, a next generation. I started out finishing 10th and then eventually it was okay. I had a, a top six finish, then I would drop down to eighth and then I would have like a fifth place and then I'd finish six and then third and then I'd have a second and then I would finish eighth. And it was kind of off and on, but I'd have spurts of like, okay, you know, I came second in a world cup race. Like this is, this is huge. This is fantastic. And then I would get, you know, beat right back down to where I'd come 10th in a race. Clearly, I don't have all the skills yet. My ego would take a bit of a hit. And so that's kind of what the next four years was like, was just on-off performance and trying to find my rhythm in this new skill set with new expectations. I'm now responsible for somebody else's life. I drive the sled. 
if I make a mistake and we launch out of the track or I crash, you know, I could cause them a concussion. They could get third degree burns. I could get third degree burns. You know, there's an onslaught as with most sports of, you know, the danger part that comes into it. And you have to take that very seriously. And so I approached every day in the fashion of just be the very best that I can be. I really had to drown out a lot of the other competitors, a lot of the other athletes. And in my sport, bobsled, it's just us versus the clock. I stand on that line. Once we start pushing that sled, once we get in and we drive down, it's a timed event. And so I truly tried to remain focused on time and not the finish time, but in the process of what it took for me to be faster each and every race. That included the physical aspect of the start, the first 50 meters, on driving each corner better and better each time I got to go to a track and just being 100% focused when I was at those tracks and doing the best I could. And then when I made a mistake, acknowledging that's all that it was. It's not like I went out and tried to make mistakes. It's not like I'm going to go, yeah, I'm going to really try and you know crap the bed today. That's not what it's about. <laughs> I went out, I tried I my best. Not. If it happens, it happens. Right. You learn from it and you move forward. And I think a lot of times I had moments when I would dwell, don't get me wrong, on mistakes I would make. How could I make that mistake or why? And I had a great coach. I was like, look, you didn't try and make a mistake. True. He's like, so you did the best. Move on. Just don't do it again. Right. Learn from okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Focus really intently and try and, you know, not make those mistakes again. And so putting that philosophy and really focusing on myself and my performance, on me and my teammate, my brakeman allowed me again to to gain back a bit of control in my ability, but it also allowed me to be very in the moment in sport. And I think that's what helped that four years. So by the time I got to the Olympics in 2010, the whole goal was just do the very best that I can do. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I've had people write me off. No one knows my name. No one expects anything. I've been driving for four years. I've won one race in the last four years. So who knows if I'm going to be able to win this one, but the goal wasn't on winning. It was about doing my best each and every step that it was going to take in order to ultimately have a great result. And a great result could be winning the race. Again, history isn't written, but I'm not going to focus on the end. I'm going to focus on each and every step in the process and being as great at all of those steps so that I can have the result that I'm happy with at the end. Oh, I love that. I mean, that's that's diving too. Like, and you guys have to very much stay in the moment, but like it's you have to, no matter what you're doing, you have to give your best in order to win. But if you're focused on winning, you're not obviously doing your best. Your focus is in the wrong place. You have to stay in that moment. And I love that that's where your focus was. I'm sure that helped a lot. Like, so what I mean, what what was that Olympics like? You're 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 focused on all the right things, you're in your home country. Like, I mean, was when you finished and you found out you won, like what was that moment like? <laughs> I mean, oh. It's still to this day. I mean, that moment, it, it was surreal for sure. The Olympic competition. So in Vancouver 2010, right as we got into the village, luge in our sport. So luge skeleton, which is the head first one. Crazy. Um, luge is the feet first. And then us and Bob said, luge had already started training. And as we're heading into opening ceremonies, check in the village, go down opening ceremonies. Um, a luge athlete dies on the track. Oh my goodness. And that sent the sliding world into a very big panic, yeah. to say the least. Everybody in the sliding world knows that that's all possible, but I don't think the world has 
or really recognized or had seen that before. And so then it was what's going to happen with the track. Everyone's talking about this crazy, insane bobsled track that's so dangerous now. And I'm like, what is happening? Everything I knew and all the skill sets and every planning I had done and all the training runs I had done on this track. And now everybody is full on panicking, changing different lines, you know, going here, going there. And so I really, again, had to go back to like very tiny micro goals and taking it moment by moment. And so when I finally got to get onto the track and my first rundown, my first training, official training rundown, and I was like, oh, the track's the same as it was in my head, as it was in all the training runs for the last five years that I've been down the track. Yes, there's been a horrible incident that's occurred, but that isn't going to derail or I'm not going to question my ability based off of somebody else. So it, it reiterated that focus on you, focus on what you're here to do and accomplish, which is be the best that I can be in each step of the way. And so we did the official training. We got to race day, run one of four, run one. I was winning the race. And I was like, well, I'd never been in <laughs> the number one position before. So I was like, uh, forget about it. It doesn't matter. And so then we got to run two and we got to the bottom and I was like, I'm not looking at the time. Like, and it, I literally didn't. And I had people like, good job. And I was like, okay, I don't know where I'm at. But at this point now I started to like panic and freak out a bit. And I was like, it's not about the result. If I do all the steps, right. If I push really fast, if I drive all the corners perfectly, like I know how to do the result will be there. So I need to trust in that. So I stopped looking actually at the downtime at the like finish time at the end. Mm -hmm. So we got to the end of day one. So both runs, and then you have to go through the little media tunnel where you're talking to everybody. And then of course, and everyone tells you where you're at, you're winning. And you're like, okay, well now I know that part. So (laughs) that strategy. Thanks media. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I don't know by how much. So I was like, I'm still not going to look at the time. It's it's a combined time, right? Yeah. yeah, but maybe I'm only one one hundredth ahead, which is like the width of a hair. So I don't know where I'm at, but again, it doesn't matter. So we do the, you go through the like little media and you do all your things and then it was like, okay, well, ignore all of that and let's just keep doing our job. So we went back, we polished our runners. Um, so we were up till, you know, one in the morning and then you go back to the condos where you're at, the village, and you just eat your dinner, you go to sleep. And then sleeping for me in competitions is always, it's, it's hard, but it's not. Um, I'm not one that gets super stressed out. I'm usually pretty exhausted and can sleep pretty, which I'm lucky that way. And so <laughs> went to sleep, woke up and it was like, okay, let's just pretend yesterday didn't exist. Nothing happened. We've got two runs today, just like a normal World Cup race. Let's go. And so run one, we're first off because we're winning the race. We get to the bottom. And again, I'm like, don't look at the time. You had a really good run. And my third run in Vancouver was actually my best. It was my fastest. It would have put me sixth in the men's competition. Wow. Uh, And it put me like about four tenths later looking back. I didn't know it at the time, but it put me like four tenths ahead of everybody. But again, it was, I knew it was a good run. I got to the bottom and I was like, okay, it felt really fast at the beginning. Timing between me and my teammate was on point. I drove corner one really well. It set me up good for two, three, four. Everything just lined up. It flowed. It felt smooth. I was happy when I got to the bottom. Fourth run, I got one run left. And this is where later on people are like, did you know? And I'm like, no, I didn't know. I knew I was winning the race because I was going off very last. So the last run, they always reverse order it Mm -hmm. in bobsled. 
So the person that goes off at the very end is was you sitting know, in the first yeah. place and they try and build the drama. Of course. And so I was like, okay, well, I know we're still winning because go- we're going off last. But again, I didn't know by how much. And I was like, just do it again. And it wasn't so much don't make a mistake, do it again, as much as I'm chasing that same feeling of I've done it once. Now repeat what that timing felt like hitting the sled. So, it, you know, we practiced the cadence over and over before we went out. Not more than normal, the same amount, but we practiced it again. And then I was like, okay, corner one, it feels like this one, it's perfect. So I'd go through my visualizations. And then I found myself starting to like freak out a little bit. And I was doing more visualizations than I had ever done, which I think is normal because you're in this foreign position where you're like, this is the Olympics and I could win and I need to be even better than I've ever been in my life. (laughs) And I went to my coach and I was like, okay, I've done like 50. And he's like, whoa, you need to stop. And I was like, what? And he's like, calm down. You're okay. You don't need to be better than your best. He's like, just do you just go out there. You visualize, you know what you're supposed to do and just execute it. Go over it again once more, but only once more before you go. And then that was kind of one of those like, okay, I could see how people can overstress on things in situations. And so we went down, we did the last fourth run and we crossed the finish line. And then you have about a 250 meter kind of breaking section and there's people cheering and flags are waving and everybody's screaming. But I also feel like because it's a home Olympics, people were going to do that anyways. You know, we were Canada and I, I couldn't see a time. And because everyone was standing up and cheering and so loud, we went right past where the time clock was. I had no idea. And so we get out of the sled and I grab the bobsled because I don't want it to start sliding back down the track. And uh, my coach runs up and I'm like, and? (laughs) And so there was like this moment of like 20 seconds where I had no idea. Turns out we had won. And um, (laughs) I really wish now looking back, I did something cool at the finish. But like, I had no idea. And by not knowing... I think that eased the pressure and it allowed me to, it allowed my mind to focus on what I had to do and kind of drowned out a lot of those scenarios. And they would creep in, don't get me wrong. You know, maybe you're close to winning, maybe you're not on the way down, driving down. I was like, I don't really know where I'm at. Don't make mistakes, just drive. But it, I, because I didn't know, I was like, okay, just focus on what you can control, like each drive step by step. And so, yeah, we got to the finish and my coach is looking at me and he's cheering and I'm like, and... Like someone's got to tell me something here, people. And so then it was like, you won. So then we, it was like, holy crap. Okay. <laughs> but it doesn't really sink in. Like you're like, cool. Right. And now what? <laughs> and now what? And then you're like, uh, and no one tells you the what after. You're like, do you cheer? Do you not? Like, where are my parents? What am I supposed to do with this sled? Do I just leave it here now? Who's going to take <laughs> right. the sled? Like no one really tells you what. So I do the same thing I do every other time. We take the sled away and I'm like going through and like taking care of the equipment. And then eventually my coach is like, what are you doing? And I'm like, what? He's like, go, like, go celebrate, go cheer, go do something. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, then it was, I got to fully acknowledge. So that was a good, like two minutes later that I was like, oh, shoot. Okay. This happened. Everything that I'd worked for. And like my dreams have just come true. And realistically, it probably took a whole year, year and a half to really sink in. I'd have moments and you go and do media afterwards and, but everything is so overwhelming and you get the medal and you know, it's there and certain parts live up to your expectations and other parts you, you're just kind of going with the flow wherever the volunteers tell you to go and you don't really know what's happening, but you do. And then 
you kind of forget about it. You're like, well, it's very surreal. Yeah, it's very surreal. I agree. You're kind of like, what is this really happening? Because it, it's, it's fat, like as long as this buildup is for it, right? All these years of training and all this stuff you've been through and then boom, it's over in like a few minutes. And you're like, okay, now what? <laughs> now? <laughs> uh, what's next? Like three months later, I'm still cleaning the toilet the same way. And I'm like, uh, okay. Like now I'm an Olympic champion cleaning the toilet, but things haven't really changed. Like still doing this job here. So so, I mean, what, yeah. what did that do? I mean, because you not only won an Olympic gold medal, but you won it in your home country in front of the Canadian crowd, like, which had to be incredible. Like, did you think about retiring, like, at the top of your game? Or, like, what, no. were you always going to just keep going? I was always going to keep going, no matter what happened in 2010. And that was part of what I told myself throughout 2010, too, was that regardless of what happens, I'm going to 2014. Like, that's my goal already. Whether I actually get to go or not, who knows, but like, I'm going to try and go for another four year cycle after this. So I was like, well, if I crap the bed, I got another game that I'll just, you know, be another statistic of it takes eight years to build a really good pilot. At the same point, I didn't want to, I didn't want to have that as an excuse. I didn't want it to be like, well, you're probably not going to do anything. So just focus, you know, eight years down the road and slack. I didn't want it to be yeah. my excuse of where I could slack and do it. At the same point, it allowed me to ease some tension and stress knowing I was going to go on. So I got to live in the moment. Definitely bobsled competes. And then we have four days until closing ceremonies. So that next four days was crazy. And there were times when I was like, I cannot believe all of this is happening. And yeah, just getting to celebrate with your country was something that was so unique to Vancouver in 2010. And especially for Team Canada at that point, because we ended up, um, Canada had never won an Olympic gold medal on home soil. And in 2010, we ended up winning 14 of them. Wow. So I had 14 other athletes or teams. So there's a bunch of us that all had that same experience, which was really cool because it really bonded and connected us as a team and as a whole. And I got to really live that last four days. I barely slept. I maybe got like two hours a night, maybe for the next four days. Worth um, it. I went to every, <laughs> worth it hundred percent. I went to everything I could possibly get tickets for. I was like, I don't even care. Lived it up as hard as I could at the end. But it, just being able to walk down the street, you know, with your fellow Canadians the food's the same. There's a pride piece and yes, winning an Olympic medal, but also watching opening and closing ceremonies. There's also a bit of responsibility. I felt as a Canadian athlete, I'm like, I hope the rest of the world is having fun. Like I'm here. I think this giant beaver is super cool. That's walking, you know, on the stage. And I'm like, are people liking the music? Katie Lang came out and saying hallelujah. And you're like, do people love this? Like I'm in love with this right now. I hope other people love, you know, this experience as much as I do. And so it was interesting for me because as much as I was so enthralled and it was, you know, a home Olympics, I got to be a fan of a home Olympics. I got to represent my country. And then I got to share that with the entire country afterwards. And so there was so many different pieces that really um, gave back to me as an athlete that it made it one of a kind, definitely. Oh, that's so special. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. 
This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.